Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Y'all are the best. Hey, Sam, give that mic to Steph real quick. And Steph, come up here for a second. Go ahead and get out your Bibles and your notes. As you're doing that, Steph's going to come up and share something real quick that I thought was really awesome. She shared during our staff prayer time this morning. So, Steph, go for it. This is going to take me like two seconds. But uh, essentially, just when I was leaving the house, I was grabbing this notebook, and it just kind of felt like a God moment. And I knew that... Like, I was getting my heart ready that God was going to speak to me. Uh, mm. I don't know about you guys, but I can get really busy with all the things that I got to do on a Sunday and afterwards, and I've kind of had trouble engaging, but I felt like God was like, this message is for you. And so it was just kind of like that moment where you kind of have to tell your heart that the Holy Spirit, like this word, whatever mm. Andrew's bringing today, it's for you specifically. Mm. So, Come yeah. on, Steph. That's so good. See, it's important that we build habits. Sometimes we... we, we uh, we give habits a bad reputation because they're so routine, you know, and they're so, but there's, there's, uh, there's reality connected to your habits, right? It's why you work out. It's why you eat three times a day because there's substance to your habits. And so that's why we're a note-taking church. That's why we get our Bibles out. That's why we get our notes out because we're reminding our, ourselves, our, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls. I'm about to hear from God this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be, and uh, here is your, uh, I should have thought through this word, warning's too strong of a word, what's the word I'm looking for? We're going to cover a lot of ground today, and uh, I'm going to take, my goal is to take the rest of every single minute we have left in our church, so we're not even doing a worship song at the end this morning. If you've been around, you're like, wait, What? God's, uh, God is going to speak to us this morning, so I'm going to take every minute that you will give me this morning, and you know, I was thinking about it, and I was like, oh man, like it's church, man, just take it easy, you know? But then I thought, it's church, man, let's go! We're about to like, you know, how much YouTube am I going to watch this week? I can take an hour, 45 minutes or whatever to hear from God. All right, I'll stop on that and just get into the message. We are continuing our series that we've been doing for the last handful of weeks, Christian Living. Christian Living, where we are coming to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, to learn from God, learn from Jesus, how do we live out this Christian life? How do we reorient from self-centered lifestyles to a kingdom-centered lifestyle? So we've been doing that for a handful of weeks. We've got a long way to go. So we're breaking up the whole thing into kind of sections, not just parts. So we are in section two, where we are in Matthew chapter five, and we're calling section two, loving God and your neighbor. Our text this morning is going to be Matthew 5, 38 through, 30, uh, through 47. In your Bible, that's probably a couple of subtitles, but we're going we're gonna to lump it into one and center our discussion today around how Jesus addresses how we ought to live as Christians in relationship to our rights and responsibilities. Rights and responsibilities. That's what this part is called. So go ahead and stand up for the reading of the word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this time together. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that we get to be here for you, not just for ourselves, but I pray that we would come right now humbly to your word, um, ready to receive from you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in this place. Lord, I pray that you would be ministering to every single person in this room right now. We started off this morning with that prayer, do what only you can do, and we mean it. Without your power, this is nothing. Without your presence, this is meaningless. Come and do what only you can do and the things that are only for you to do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You can be seated. In each part of this series, this Christian living course that we're doing, we have been noting how Jesus, or, or, or maybe a better word to say, in each part of this section, this loving God and loving your neighbor section, we have noted how Jesus is highlighting misuses, misrepresentations, and manipulations of the law that were leading people to trust in their own self-righteousness instead of leading them to trust in the righteousness of God. Remember that one thing we have learned about Jesus is that he is a master of speaking in, he is a master of speaking in, icebergs. Jesus speaks to us in icebergs, to jog your memory if you were here a few weeks ago. Jesus is a master of speaking in icebergs, meaning that when Jesus is pointing to something that they have heard said, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg to get our attention so that once he has our attention, he can show us what is much deeper and what is much more substantial underneath the surface. Jesus means what he says when he says all these crazy things in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he means what he says. The, the tension is not that Jesus doesn't mean what he says. And, and as we read these things, it's not that Jesus isn't talking about the things that he talks about. It's just that when he's talking about something, he's talking about so much more than just what he's talking about on the surface. And we need to understand and interpret what he is saying on the surface by what he is pointing us to underneath the surface. Jesus tells us at the beginning, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. He did not preach the Sermon on the Mount to abolish the old law and write a nice brand new one. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount to take us deeper into the heart that the law and that God was most concerned about all along. So this morning in our text, Jesus brings up two statements that they have heard said. I want to go through each of those briefly for us this morning. He starts off in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So where did they hear this thing said? Where did they hear this thing said? The idea comes from Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. We're going to read those. It says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman 
so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Welcome to Old Testament law. Let's talk about this. So, so Jesus says, you've heard it said, and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what was really said was all this stuff. This is the little bit of the longer, more substantial version. So let, let's look at this law so we can understand what's going on here. What's pretty obvious is that this law involves several parties. It involves some men who are fighting, and it involves an innocent woman and child who get dragged into their fight. The law is clearly not focused on the men who are fighting. It's focused on the innocent woman and children. It says that if a, man, if a man's wife is hit and it causes her to go into labor, but then the woman and the child are okay, the law says that the husband is absolutely allowed to prosecute this other man, but he's not allowed to get revenge on the other man. He's allowed to sue him as he sees fit. Isn't that what it says? He, he can impose a fine so the man can sue the other man for he sees fit, but then that case is going to go to the court. It's going to go to the judges, and they're going to decide what's actually just. They're going to decide what the actual penalty is going to be. So the law is given to do two important things. First, this law establishes justice. The law says, God, the Bible tells us God loves justice. And the law is saying there will be justice when there is wrong. There will be justice for this innocent woman and child. And it's written, the law, the law is written to establish what justice looks like. The man can prosecute, but not get revenge. It goes to the courts. The courts decide what's going on. And then it even defines what justice looks like farther to say, and by the way, what justice looks like is along this lines of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. You see what I'm saying? If there's just a minor injury, you can't kill the guy just because you're so mad. Because that's not just, that's revenge. So this law is establishing justice and it's restricting revenge. In Jesus' day, the scribes had ignored the aim and the purpose of this law and then had expanded it in the wrong direction. They had turned a just law into a vengeful principle. Instead of the law, if somebody does an innocent person wrong, take it to the courts so they can administer a punishment that is in proportion to the crime. That's the law. They had turned it into a personal right. If you have done me wrong, I'm gonna take this into my own hands and get all that I can from you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They left the just law and created a personal right. Verse 43, Jesus brings up his other statement that he addresses in our text this morning. You have heard that it said, 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did they hear this? Where did they hear this said? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the law says, You shall not take vengeance. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I see the love your neighbor part, but I can't seem to find the hate your enemy part. So just like they had taken the the other law and manipulated it and taken it from a just law into a personal right, instead of hearing the Lord in this law calling us to a responsibility to love our neighbor, they took it as an opportunity to establish a personal right to hate the people who hate me. Jesus here is aiming his Holy Ghost torpedo (laughs) right at our iceberg-sized obsession with our personal rights. And he says, if you want to be sons of your father, if you want a reward for your life, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, don't seek revenge. Vengeance is mine. If someone sues you wrongfully, be a peacemaker, even if that means giving them more than what they're asking for. Serve those in authority over you, even if they don't treat you with dignity. Be generous with what I have given you and pray for those who hate you. Jesus is telling us that in his kingdom, his children check their personal rights at the door. which I don't like. I kind of have this thing with my personal rights. I like them. But a kingdom-oriented lifestyle, a kingdom-oriented lifestyle is one where you lay down your personal rights as an act of loving God and your neighbor instead of leveraging your personal rights to get what you want when you want it. Jesus is addressing this heart posture that we can so often have where we're constantly jockeying for our personal rights. And he tells us to lay them down. In these verses, Jesus mentions five specific life situations that um, they get a lot of attention And Christians, us Christians, not they Christians, us Christians, seem to have kind of a specific temptation to read verses 38 through 42 hyper-literally, even though we don't do that to the rest of the other sections of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount with this same lens, but sometimes when we come to these verses, it's like, okay, we're going to take this explicitly literal right off the top. And I want to address that this morning because we've got to read this for what it is. We talked about this in biblical formation at the very beginning of the year. We need to read the Bible for what it is, not what we want it to be, not what we want to make it. We need to let 
the word of God be what the word of God is, and we need to let it say what it says. And so we got to read our text this morning for what it is, a continuation of the conversation we've been having this whole time. This is part of the same flow. It's part of the same conversation. And so what that means is that Jesus means exactly what he says. But it doesn't mean he literally means exactly what he says. That's the iceberg. And we do this all the time. I was talking to my cousin yesterday. She's a third grade teacher. And she said that, I was like, what have you been teaching your third graders recently? And she said, uh some teacher language that I didn't quite understand, but she was talking about like teaching these third graders like metaphors and idioms and all this sort of stuff uh, to help them learn language. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is such a massively important part of language. I mean, how confused are these little kids, you know, when we're like, it's raining cats and dogs out there. They're like, wait, what? (laughs) This is great news. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And, and so she's like, we, we, she said, so we spent all week on it. And she said, so Friday we had uh, idiom dress up day or something. So the kids could dress up as an idiom that they liked. And so they were dressing up all, all sorts of things. So she's like, so I dressed up as a social butterfly. You know, so she's got like butterfly wings with like apps taped to all of like Instagram and Snapchat and all this stuff. And I was like, that's amazing. That's so brilliant. And it made me think of Sermon on the Mount. When you say somebody's a social butterfly, you mean exactly what you're saying. And you don't mean that they are a social butterfly. You mean they're a social butterfly. You mean exactly what you're saying, but you're not saying exactly what you're saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? What my point is, is that Jesus talks like us. And so we've got to read this for what it is. And, and, Ask him what it is that, I, I, I trust that you're saying exactly what you're saying, but what exactly is it that you're saying? Because we've got to come to this with the bulk of knowledge and understanding and revelation that we have gained along the way of the conversation to get to this point of the conversation. We know that Jesus is not saying that people with anger in their hearts should be tried in court for murder. That's what he said, but we know that's not what he's saying. We've talked about that. We know that Jesus is not saying that you only need to be reconciled to your brother if you remember that he has something against you while you're at the altar. But if you remember while you're at the grocery store, you're good. We know that Jesus isn't telling us to butcher our bodies because that's the solution to stop sinning. We know That Jesus isn't saying you're evil when you use misdirection to answer your children when they ask you what you got them for Christmas. I mean, he said that, but he's saying more than all of that. He isn't abolishing the old law and writing a new one. He's addressing the heart that the law had been getting at the whole time. He's trying to get you to stop looking at what you can see of everyone else on the surface and address the iceberg of unrighteousness in your own heart. I'd much rather read Jesus' words and start looking at all of you. Jesus, you're right. They're a mess. (laughs) Jesus is like, yeah, okay. (laughs) 
I was trying to talk about you, but okay. <laughs> See, Jesus is not in the Sermon on the Mount trying to write surface level formulas. He is establishing deeper kingdom foundational principles. He's not writing formulas. He's establishing principles. Principles. If Jesus' teaching is a formula, it's an incredibly unhelpful teaching. It's irrelevant to my life in most ways and makes no sense on how I actually respond to it. What happens after I've turned both cheeks and they want to hit me again? Am I done giving my body now or do I need to find something else? If somebody sues me, what happens if they sue me for something other than my clothes? They sue me for my clothes, I get it, I give it to them, but what if they sue me for something else? Who is gonna ask me to walk with them one mile? And then how does it benefit them if I walk with them too? How do we define beg? Like my kids? When they beg me for ice cream? I just have to give it to them? And if someone asks to borrow from me, do I need to apply the whole two-mile thing and give them double? Or how does this work? Not only does reading the passage that way make it outrageously unhelpful, worse than that, it leads to bad doctrine and bad ideas. And the rest of our time this morning, I want to get into the weeds on some things because I, I, my heart is to be helpful. And I think this series so far has been like kind of up here and it's been really awesome. And I think this week we want to try to get into the weeds because I think Jesus is getting into some weeds here that I think he really wants to help us with. And I appreciate that. I appreciate when I realize, wow, Jesus' teaching actually applied to my life. I don't just walk away with a nice saying to put in my pocket that I have no idea what it means. Yeah. I want to follow Jesus. So what I want to help us do is address the iceberg that Jesus is addressing this morning. And so when we read this passage in a way that we don't read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, it leads us to bad doctrine and bad ideas. Like the doctrine that, that Christians are all pacifists, or, that, or, or this idea of centering this idea of nonviolence. I don't know if this has been brought up to you a lot in the last few years, but this is a historical thing that's been a conversation in Christianity for a long time, and I've noticed it coming up a lot in the last few years. But what I want to say about it is that this, this doctrine that we develop when we take it, like, well, just turn the other cheek, and I'm just going to take it for its surface, and I'm not going to try to ask Jesus what's going on here. Not only does, or the, the doctrine of pacifism and centering the idea of nonviolence, it's, it's not, it, the reason it's bad and the reason I'm saying it is because it's narrow-minded and damaging. They, those, that, that doctrine and that idea, they ignore the rest of the counsel of Scripture and they're damaging to God's design of masculinity, family, and society. There are Christians who have this doctrine taken from this passage and they take it to mean that no Christian should like, for example, be a police, be in the police or, or the military. And beyond that, take it to mean that if, if we're pacifists, that a Christian man should not or should honor God by praying instead of defending his wife or his children or his neighbor were they to be under attack. Aside from that being 
pretty morally abhorrent. It means, among other things, that we better not pray for revival in the police academy because we need good, unsaved policemen to come help our families when things go badly. Not only that, but even the bigger issue than these ideas that develop from not letting the Bible tell us what Jesus is really trying to tell us is that if we are pacifists because God is a pacifist, then that means that God cannot exercise justice against evil. He cannot punish sin. There is no retribution for rebellion. He cannot defend the weak and he cannot judge unrighteousness because that would be violent. I hardly ever call things out like that from here, from this microphone. But I think it is relevant to today. And the reason that I go into it in that type of a detail is to say I don't have some ax to grind against something that I just disagree with. I'm trying to talk about the impact of the things that we believe and why it matters that we dig deeper with Jesus when he's trying to take us deeper. Jesus is not talking about some surface level idea of you should be a pacifist and not fight somebody who's trying to fight your wife and you should honor God, do all that sort of stuff. What he's doing is he's talking about the kingdom principle of laying down your personal rights. Laying down your personal rights. Now, laying down your personal rights is not the same thing as laying down your domestic responsibility. You're gonna have to track with me here, okay? It is obvious to all of us in this room that none of us are hermits, right? Otherwise, by definition, we wouldn't be here. It is obvious to us that, it is obvious to us that none of us are hermits, and all of Scripture, because of this reality, clearly outlines that we have a responsibility to live in relationship with other people. Like, a lot of the Bible's about that, right? We, we, we live in relationship with other people, and, and that's, that's what I'm labeling domestic responsibility. We have a responsibility to the people around us, first to our family, then to the household of faith, then to our neighbor, then to our nation, then to the foreigner. We have, we have responsibilities to other humans. None of us are just living in our own worlds. You could say that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength by laying down our personal rights to serve him. When I get saved, I lay down my life. My life is no longer my own, and I'm saying, Jesus, you are the king of your kingdom, and I am no longer the king of mine. I've laid down my personal rights as an act of loving you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now my lifestyle is oriented around this idea of loving you in that way. So we love God by laying down our personal rights, and we love our neighbor as ourself by picking up our domestic responsibilities to serve them. So I lay down my rights so I can serve God, and I pick up responsibility so I can serve others. We need to understand that principles exist in relationship with each other. Principles don't exist in isolation from one another. You may be a very principled driver. You go the speed limit. You know you could fudge a little bit. You know you're not going to get pulled over for five over. 
But as a matter of principle, if it's 60, I'm going 60. And that's very good for you. Well done. Gold star. But if you're driving in rush hour traffic, I hope that also as a matter of principle, you don't cause car accidents. So that when the person in front of you puts on their brakes and you see their brake lights, you don't, as a matter of principle, just keep going 60 because that's the speed limit. <laughs> Principles exist in relationship with each other. A kingdom-oriented lifestyle is guided by principles, not by formulas. And that's complicated. It's kind of why Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Because <laughs> he's kind of showing, like, y'all are suckers for formulas. But Jesus has entirely rigged the system. We cannot walk with him without actually walking with him. We want the formula, so we get it from him, and then we just walk away and do our thing, and we do our formulas, and we pat ourselves on the back every night because we're good Christians who did the thing. Don't, I mean, come on. Like, is that just me? Like, I want the formula because I want to do a good job. Like, I want to look. And Jesus is like, abide in me. And I'm like, I don't have the math for that. Like, how do I know if I'm abiding? He's like, do it, and you'll bear fruit. I'm like, what kind of fruit? What's fruit look like? How much fruit? And do I have more fruit than him? <laughs> but a kingdom-oriented lifestyle is guided by principles, not formulas. And in order to navigate the tension in the relationship of kingdom principles, we have to have godly wisdom. That's where Jesus rigged the system. It's like these principles have this built-in tension that he's like, if you want to know like, how to apply what, which one when, you're like, going to have to talk to me. Can't just go get a degree and be the expert. You actually need to like, listen to my voice and obey me. Isn't that beautiful? So if we want to navigate the principles, we have to have godly wisdom, which means we have to know the word of God. We have to be full of the spirit of God. We have to obey the voice of God. We have to be submitted to the people of God. We can't go be Christian hermits. Okay. Men, we're going to have a men's conference here for a few minutes. Ladies, you're invited, and you're going to want to be here for this. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I want to talk to you for a second, and, and I think this is going to be accurate and meaningful, because I, I, this might be even something that's been planted in us underneath the, we're not there yet, <laughs> um, something that's kind of been planted in us subconsciously, but I, I, want, I want you to hear me say this out loud, that Gentlemen, God did not save you to castrate you of your masculinity and reduce your life to neat formulas of just gentle behavior. He saved you to make you a principled man of God who lays down his personal rights, accepts his domestic responsibility, and acts in godly wisdom. That's what you're made for. 
That's what you're made for, and that's what you're saved for. So I want to get into the weeds, like I said, and talk about five situations that Jesus brings up here. And on the surface, they may look like old Bible time stuff that doesn't really apply to us, but but I think Jesus is actually really trying to talk to you about some seriously relevant, seriously real life stuff that you're going to find really beneficial. I'm not going to give you religious formulas for how to act. What I'm trying to do this morning, and so I, I can't cover every nuance and all that sort of stuff, so let's have this conversation be what it is. It's not counsel in every specific situation where Andrew told you what to do. This is talking about what are the kingdom principles and how do we learn how to think? How do we learn how to think with God on how we apply the principles that he's given us? So I'm only gonna talk about things that Jesus brings up. Number one, the first thing he talks about is personal defense, as you've seen. Personal defense. What do you do in a situation? And this is for all of us, but men of God, have you ever wondered, read this verse and been like, well, shoot, I like really love my wife. And like, if somebody's getting up in her face, like, I'm not okay with that. And now I'm in tension, but I, wanna, I don't want to be a bad guy. Is this just me or is this anybody? Like, you, okay, have you, like you've had these conversations, right? Okay, so like, what do I do? What do I, what do I do if someone is attacking? What do you do if someone's attacking you? Or we'll just put everybody else in, in a big category here, innocent people, wife, children, whatever. The first thing we got to do, let's learn how to think. What have we learned so far? Well, first, I lay down my personal rights. In this scenario, I do not have a right to revenge. I don't have a right to just anger and rage. No matter how right I am, I can't just rage and fly off the handle. I can't take out my frustration on this person because I don't have personal rights here. So we've got to think through that. I've got to lay down my personal right to self-centered preservation. I can't just see this as an opportunity to impose my will and feel like a big dude. Number one, I lay down my personal rights. Okay, I've laid down my personal rights. Now I've got to pick up my, my domestic responsibility to protect and provide the peop- for the people around me. And if, so then you start looking around. This, since this isn't about me, let me make this about everybody else. Are there innocent people that need my help? Are there weak people that I can serve sacrificially? Because I don't have rights. I don't even have a right to my own life in this situation. I am here and I exist for these other people. Is it my wife? Is it your kids? Is it your neighbor? Somebody who can't help themselves? How can I operate as a responsible man of God in this situation? Okay, so now you're assessing the situation and then it's okay. Now I've got to act in godly wisdom, which a lot of times comes through questions. What course of action will make peace since I'm a peacemaker? Sometimes making peace takes a little bit of hard effort first. What course of action will make peace? If I'm about to have to use force, how do I only do what has to be done and not just live in rage? What course of action aligns with godly justice? which according to the law we talked about in Exodus doesn't necessarily mean I just have the right to do whatever I want in this situation. There's, there's, there's the law. What, what, can, what am I legally allowed to do? What am I legally required to do? I have responsibility and I need to live inside the bounds that God has given me. 
So that's how, we, that's how we need to think through that type of situation. Number two, Jesus brings up money and property disputes. Totally irrelevant to our lives, right? This whole cloak and tunic thing. So if somebody sues you, and this may seem far away for you, but ask somebody who's been around for a while and gone through some inheritance struggles, or I'm, I'm just saying, this is real life, right? I mean, Paul talks about this in the Corinthians. They've written him, and they're like, all of us are suing each other. What should we do? <laughs> this isn't new. This is what we do. We, we, this is a normal part of being in societies. We have a dispute over these things. There's dispute about money and, and personal property. So what do I do? If somebody's suing me, I lay down my rights first. I don't have a right for some vendetta here. It's like, oh, you want to play that game? I know a guy. I've got a lawyer that can run you over. And for the trouble, why don't I do this too? You see what I'm saying? I don't have a right to fight just because of the inconvenience. I don't have a right to offense against this person. I don't have a right to revenge. We've already talked about that. And one of the best ways I need to lay down my personal rights in a situation where somebody's in a dispute against me is ask this humble, meek question. Am I wrong about something? <laughs> Am I wrong anywhere in this? Instead of just bowing up and saying, let's roll. I need to lay down my personal rights and then I need to pick up domestic responsibility. If you have wronged a neighbor, you have a responsibility to humbly and peacefully make it right. You, need to, you have a responsibility in any situation to do what you can to settle that situation peacefully and generously. It's your responsibility to contribute to that. If you are wrongfully, if someone is wrongfully pursuing you, and, and now you're looking around and realizing this actually isn't just about me. This is going to cost my business and my employees. This is going to cost my family, my kids, my wife. Like, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't right. I'm not in the wrong, and this is actually going to cost other people. I can't just lay down and get run over for their sake. I can't sacrifice them for this. So in that situation, you have a responsibility to stand up and fight for the innocent, not for yourself, which means... Now we're getting to godly wisdom. Is there a sacrifice I can make right now to bring peace and give grace? How can I just throw my cloak into this situation as well? Even if I'm right. Is, is, and, then, and then let's talk about this, getting into like the rest of the New Testament. Like if this is a dispute in church, do we really have to go to court about this or can we talk to the church about it? We've got to act in godly wisdom. Number three, Jesus brings up abuses of power. This whole walk with somebody two miles, if they ask you to go one, the Romans, they could just find a citizen and be like, here, carry my stuff. And they were like legally required to walk a mile, up to a mile with, these, with like these jerks. And Jesus is like, if somebody's gonna abuse power and completely disregard your dignity, go with them too. <laughs> so what do we do in abuses of power? Well, we lay down our personal rights. I don't have a right to be respected. I don't have a right to be treated with dignity, personally. I don't have a right to just be offended and get angry at you. See, if this is, if, when, when, when this kind of stuff comes up, this very quickly becomes about me and my pride. Like, you're not going to treat me like that. And 
Jesus is saying, lay down your personal rights. Even if your dignity, even if it's about your dignity, you need to lay it down. You need to lay down your rights and look to serve other people. Now, if we're in, now that we've done that, let's pick up domestic responsibility. Are there weak or innocent people getting impacted by this? I'm fine to walk with you two miles, but you're not gonna mess with innocent people about all this on my watch. There's, something, there's some responsibility there. How are you putting others before yourself? Now we need to apply this godly wisdom. If there's some sort of thing that needs to be navigated here, what I do know is I have to have godly wisdom, which means I honor authority. Now, how does that work in this whole situation? Exactly, we need to walk with God. We need to hear the voice of Jesus. How do I, how do I pursue justice in this situation according to the justice system that the word tells me God has defined in this situation? Again, I'm not here with my personal rights to just take up my offense with every situation. He brings up giving to the needy. Giving to the needy. Number one, what do we do? We lay down our personal rights. Which we could sum up in saying, okay, I need to live with the realization that I don't deserve all that I have like I think I do. Doesn't matter how hard I worked for it. Everything I have is a gift from God. Everything I have is a gift from God has been provided to me by him. I have no rights to what I have. Now I need to pick up domestic responsibility here. I have a responsibility to be giving to the things of God, to tithe. Am I doing that? Am I, am I fulfilling the godly responsibility that he's given me? Am I providing for my family? You ought to be paying your bills. Don't give all your money away and come to God and be like, take care of my credit card bill. Do you see what I'm saying why this matters? So we've got this responsibility, responsibility to God, responsibility to our family, responsibility to the people we owe money to. We have a responsibility to care for the household of faith. And then we do have a responsibility to love our neighbor and serve the poor. All of these things work together. And to understand that we need godly wisdom. We need godly wisdom. So for example, you know, the question's like, well, do you have any margin built into your life to be generous? Because that's kind of important. Or is your life completely self-centered? And now, I'm not saying if you don't, don't take that to be what it's not. If money's tight and all that sort of stuff, I'm not saying that. You, you tracking with me? Don't make it what it's not. You know when you're choosing not to create available margin and when you're not. Is giving money the best thing in this situation? Is there another way that I can help? When I can't figure all that out, what can I give in this situation and just trust God with it? knowing that God is the judge of this person and me. So I don't have to have the whole thing worked out. These are examples of godly wisdom. And number five, Jesus brings up the scenario of loving people who don't like you. How do I do that? Well, I lay down my personal rights. I don't have a right to be offended. I don't have a right to bitterness, hate, revenge. I have a responsibility to pursue reconciliation with meekness and humility in any way that I'm able to in my own strength. I have a responsibility to take responsibility for any wrongs that I've committed in this situation. I have a responsibility to forgive as I've been forgiven. And I need godly wisdom then to navigate some of this stuff because a lot of times these relationships get a little testy. Am I right? A lot of times there's kind of some good reasons as to why there's tension going on. And so, yes, you do need godly wisdom. Do you need boundaries for your own protection or the protection of others? That's valid. 
Do I need godly counsel and input from others in this situation to know how to navigate it so it's not just me and my emotions? Am I praying for this person and about this situation? (laughs) Is God even in the room or am I just trying to make this thing happen? (laughs) See, principled men of God are oriented, are not oriented around themselves. Principled men of God are oriented around their responsibilities to God and to their neighbor. The world does not need men of passion. The world needs men of principle. Passion is a great thing, but it has to be submitted to your principles or your passions will ruin you. Passion has to have an aim. It is not an aim in and of itself. Passion fuels your drive, but it is your principles that decide the road you are driving on. If you put passion in the driver's seat of your life, it's going to lead you away from the things of God. It will lead you away from your integrity. It will lead you away from your consistency. It will lead you away from your wife. Can we talk real life? If you put passion in the driver's seat, see, if that's what's going to happen. And, and, and men, if you, are, if you are with a woman and she doesn't know if she can trust you, which probably means you feel like she's nagging you a lot, It might, be, it might be because she needs to stop nagging you. And it might be because you need to start leading her somewhere. Because a woman will nag you if she's scared of having to chase you or if she's tired of having to drag you. You can build your life on principles and you must. You can stand on principles and you must. You can fall back on principles, and you must. Fathers, disciple your sons to be men of principle. Brothers, demand principle from one another. Don't let each other compromise. Sharpen each other. Demand it from your brothers that they be principled men. All right, ladies, time for your women's conference. Men, you're going to want to hear this. Women, you, you, you already know that what you're most attracted to is a man of principle. And I want to encourage you to not let the world lie to you and tell you that what you really need to be looking for is a man of passion. It's a lie. It's a lie. Passions change. They come and go, and they're not trustworthy. Passion has no inherent connection to values or character. Passion is great, but it is reactionary. And I want you to know that A passionate man spends his life chasing things, which means at some point you will end up chasing him. It is principled men who lead somewhere, and it is a principled man who you want to follow. If you are looking for a man, if you're in this room looking for a man, make him prove his principles to you. It may cost you some men along the way, but in the long run, you will be glad you have a man you can follow and not a man you have to chase. If you are with a man and he needs to work on his principles, by all means, feel free to bring it up to him. Once. If saying it once doesn't help, saying it twice is going to make it worse. Nagging a man will either make him worse or make him leave. I'm not saying you're wrong. Let's be real. You're probably right. 
You are probably right, but it just, it just is what it is. You don't have to like what I'm saying, but it is what it is. He should listen to you, but that doesn't mean he will. And saying it over and over again isn't going to make him do what you want him to do. I'm trying to talk to the wives in the room, and I'm just telling you, based on these principles, that you are his wife, you are not his head. You can help him, but the fact is that most of the time, it's going to be other men that sharpen him. You can help him, but it is God who has to lead him. That doesn't mean you can do nothing. There are two very powerful, unique things that you can do as a wife to help your man grow in his principles. And I'm going to tell you what they are. The first thing you can do is pray for him. And if that sounds kind of flimsy, I want you to pray that God would lead him. I want you to pray that God would bring other men around him to sharpen him. And I want you to be encouraged because God really loves you. And God's way easy to get through to than your husband is. So pray with confidence. Gentlemen, come back in the room for a second. I want to tell you now that you've heard this. Sometimes God may tell a praying woman to call your friends or call your pastor and give it to them to handle whatever situation needs to be handled. So listen the first time. (laughs) All right, you guys can leave. Women, only call his friends or his pastor if God tells you in prayer. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing you can do, the first thing you can do is pray for him. The second thing you can do is honor him. Men like to win. We aren't complicated. You're complicated, so you think we should be, but we're not. (laughs) We like to win. So when your husband does something that is a win, give him a trophy. Give him a trophy and see if he doesn't start doing that thing a little bit more. Now, I'm going to take this exercise way too far, and I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. I'm going to give you a cheat sheet on the best rewards you can give your husband to reinforce his good principles. When he does something right, give him any sum or all three of the three S's. The three S's. Steak. Spirits. And sex. If your man is demonstrating good principles, give him a meal he likes to eat, give him a drink he likes to drink, and yeah, I know, I don't get to talk at Marriage Encounter, so I got to get it in now. Now, you might be thinking, you know, you're like, no, that's manipulative. Like, that, that sounds really manipulative. It is not manipulative. Manipulation is, I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. Honor is, thank you, baby, for taking care of me. I'd like to take care of you. Watch what happens. Now, if you're not married yet, keep the sex out of it. Keep the sex out of it until he picks up his domestic responsibility to marry you before he has sex with you. Make that man be a man. And if you don't keep the sex out of it until he marries you, don't be surprised if he takes forever to marry you. If you're with a man and there's some of this going on and he's trying to figure out his commitment level, stop having sex with him, give him 30 days max and he'll know exactly where he's at. 
I mean, I know it's, it's, it's two nuts and bolts, right? But I figure we can play games or talk real life. Parents, parenting conference. Our last few minutes here. We gotta wrap this sucker up. Parents, your sons need you to make space for their passion. Passion's not a bad thing. They need, that your sons need you to make space for their passion because if he can't be rowdy under your approval, he will go be rowdy under someone else's. And he needs you to model principles. He needs you to make space for his passion and model principles. So fathers, listen up. You have got to model godly principles and talk to your son about those godly principles. You can't do one or the other. You gotta do both. You gotta demonstrate for him and then sometimes you gotta pull him aside and explain to him what he was watching. Explain to him what it was that, that he saw. Show him what it looks like to be principled and then explain what it looks like to be principled. Mothers, your son wants to make you proud. So show him what makes you proud. Honor principles in your husband. When you see your husband doing honorable, principled things, pull your son aside and make sure he notices it and that it means a lot to you. When, you, when there are other men in his life doing something principled, when they show principles, pull your son aside and point to it and say, look at what a good man that man is for living out that principle. I appreciate that. That makes me feel safe. That makes me feel respected. That makes me trust that friend of ours. And you got to honor it in your son. When he lives out something principled, pour gas on it. Reward him, cheer him on, thank him, celebrate him, hug him, point it out, tell him he did great, and tell him that you loved it. And, and whether your son is like the rough and tumble or the sensitive, like none of that matters. This isn't personality. This isn't about preferences. We're talking about kingdom principles here. So what's the end game Jesus is getting at here? Verse 45 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If we are going to be sons of the King and heirs to his kingdom, we can't try to be the kings of our own kingdoms. We've got to lay down our personal rights. We've got to pick up the responsibilities he's given to us, and we need to live in response to his godly wisdom. And in verse 46, Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Of course, Jesus is not saying here that there's no value in loving the people who love you. <laughs> there's a reward for loving your wife. There's a reward for loving your children. He wants you to love your family and your friends, but he's also calling you beyond that. He is calling you to live with a sacrificial love of God and your neighbor that he demonstrated for us. That he demonstrated for us a love that lays down personal rights, picks up responsibility. It is a love from heaven. It is a love for heaven. And it is the love of heaven that lays down rights, picks up responsibility, and walks in wisdom. Gentlemen, I'd like you to stand up. I want to pray for you as we close. God, I thank you for these men. Thank you that you've made them men. I pray that you would make us men of God. Men of God who know how to lay down our, our personal rights. Men of God who pick up the responsibilities you've given us. And men of God humbly submitted 
and surrendered to your godly wisdom. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that you've been convicting us of this morning, that we would lay down our rights to be perfect and we would come running to you to teach us. Anywhere that these principles haven't been modeled for us, I thank you that you are our Father. And I pray that you would put it inside of us. Lord, we pray that these men would be men who love others and not themselves. We pray that these would be men the world can count on, men that heaven can count on. We pray that they'd be men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Men who know Jesus and walk with him. Men of the word of God. Men of the spirit of God. Men of the church of God. Make us men of responsibility in this house. Make us men of responsibility in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, our cities, our nation, and the nations of the earth. We want to be sons of our Father in heaven, and we want to live lives worthy of a reward. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.